Welcome to episode 32 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with someone that you think might need to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. On the show so far, we've discussed suicide in the service member and veteran population, both in general and in particular. Today, we wanted to expand our discussion to the topic of suicide in the military and veteran spouse population. Shauna, what can you tell us about today's guest? Michelle Zook is a former AWACS Air Weapons Officer who earned a master's in public policy after separating from the Air Force. It was her privilege to serve the constituents of Texas's 4th Congressional District as Constituent Services Manager for Congressman John Ratcliffe, while also advising on his veterans' legislative portfolio. She's currently an economics impact researcher, residing in the DFW Metroplex area, where she and her husband, also a veteran, raised their family. I asked her about how suicide loss may have been personal in her own life, and she relayed this. I lost an airman to suicide in 2008. I spent months poring over what I could have missed, what I could have done differently, what support was missing. To this day, it remains a mystery what he was thinking that night. However, I carried those lessons with me when I transitioned into the military spouse sphere. And when I started noticing a friend struggling during her husband's deployment, it really brought home how it seems that very few, particularly people in the DOD, Talk about suicide among dependents. Yes, I think it was important to have a conversation about suicide in the military and veteran spouse population. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. You are a veteran yourself and you're a military spouse. And and a lot of the conversations you and I have had over the last couple of years is we're focusing a lot on military suicide, on veteran suicide, but not on military spouse or veteran spouse suicide. Why do you think this is an important topic that we need to discuss? I think it's important because you have to look at a whole family unit. And we know that the military spouse well-being is a critical part, not just in the service members' well-being through a deployment, but in post-deployment and reintegration. I didn't come to this topic intentionally. I know a lot of people are like, be very intentional about how you approach your life and your career. I've had a lot of serendipity play a part, and, and I think you have to leave room for that. But I came to this as air crew. So that was my background in the military. In my career, it was right at the time that the Air Force had had a lot of interaction with the Army and the Marine Corps through deployments. And so we're deploying over and over and over. And while traditionally the Air Force has been one of the more highly integrated branches and ops, you still have pockets where you don't have an ops and maintenance. I guess you don't have a lot of of female or women in service. And so you still have very much a bro environment. And it's almost easy to look at spouses as second class. They're separate. Home, wash your dishes and play in your spouse's club, right? When in reality, they're enablers and force multipliers. As the time I'm exiting active duty, it's about the time that you're starting to see Facebook pages and groups like Dear Dependa and 
overly sensitive military wives groups come up and it's like they're highlighting every negative thing a military spouse could do. And some of these, you're not even sure it's real at some mm-hmm. level. You're like, did this really happen? So when I got out of service, I was pretty jaded about the whole military spouse culture. I didn't really have anything to do with it. I was ops. Why would I have anything to do with the spouses, right? So I got out and as luck would have it, we ended up right after I got out, my husband got PCS orders to Utah in the winter. And I have a toddler and I'm five or six months pregnant and he gets orders to go TDY with no real end date. And the day he leaves, it snows five inches. So like... I'm capable. I'm captain in the Air Force. I can do this, right? I think I tell myself all the things I've accomplished. I'm a strong, capable woman. I go outside and start shoveling snow and I trigger contractions. And I remember laying in the snow thinking, okay, God, you're going to have to send someone because I don't know when he's coming home. And the someones that responded were spouses. They weren't even in my husband's squadron. They were just, you were your neighbors. This is what we do. And they welcomed me with open arms. And I'm, I'm like, this is not the stereotype. These women didn't wear their husband's ranks. They didn't have the you will salute me attitude. They didn't wear camo and thank me for my service. So it was kind of eye-opening. So I went through and I ended up getting my master's degree in public policy. And I probably wouldn't have ever stumbled across this except that especially since I don't have a mental health background. I'm a policy researcher. I probably wouldn't have stumbled onto it, except I started noticing that all these papers were geared towards military well-being, military mental health well-being. No one was talking about the spouses. And when my husband was deployed, I remember at one point, just like, here I am with a four-year-old and a two-year-old by myself. I've been taking six hours of grad school classes. I'm a long way from home. He was not supposed to be gone longer than 60 days. And for four months, they involuntarily extended him a month at a time. We'd get to a week before he would leave. And then, oh no, we extended you. And it was just like a slap in the face. And so I remember the the people who reached out to me, you know, if it hadn't been for our pastor, who at the time was a former British naval chaplain, and our, our good friends, she was a licensed clinical social worker who specialized in adolescent intervention. And her husband was a case agent for the uh, Utah CPS. If it hadn't been for them, I don't know where we would be. It's like I tell my friends, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The Others, with Nicole Kidman, where she's left on alone on an island with her two kids while her husband's off at war. That movie became a lot scarier after that deployment. And so... I started looking just to see how unique my experience was, but also in that my friends had had, some of them had really traumatic deployments. I have one friend, her husband was gone, I think four consecutive Christmases, Mm -hmm. just bad luck, four consecutive Christmases. And we're not talking little like, these were, these were 180 to nine month deployments. And he would basically get home, have a couple months, leave. And their family was just in shambles. And she, she finally kind of broke down, took her son to a mental health professional. And she said, your son is broken. Your son is broken. And you have to understand that you're basically living like a separated divorced family. And she was like, this isn't what I signed on for. And I'm like, well, none of us signed on for this at this point. It's not what any of us signed up for. And so she was actually in Germany And because she was a different religious belief, she got left out of a lot. And so she's on an island, basically, again, by herself with two small children. And so I started researching and I I started looking. And so as I'm sure you're aware, Congress actually started talking about this first. There are times I think the Department of Defense doesn't want to 
acknowledge some housekeeping details. And so around the 10th anniversary of 9-11 is when the first time this came up in Congress. And then in 2013, the Department of Defense ordered a feasibility study that tracked suicides for military dependents. And it was supposed to be budgeted for $600,000. And then in 2015, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, Section 567, ordered the Secretary of Defense to develop and implement a policy. And it was supposed to collect, report, and assess any death reported as a suicide that involved a dependent of the armed forces. But we didn't see this report released. That was 2015. That we didn't, didn't come see... out until 2019, based right. on 2017 numbers. Based on 2017 numbers. And so it took basically Senators Tim Kaine and Patty Murray getting a letter sent, and they sent a letter. And then defense's response was to come back and say, oh, well, the policy just got issued in November 2017. And that policy, it only ordered the sponsors to report the dependent suicide, and then DEERS would have to scan in the death certificate, the services would provide the aggregated data, and the policy never stated that the office had to release the numbers of military dependent suicides, even though Congress told them to. I'm not going to say it's a willful neglect. I can't explain what the Pentagon thinks or does any more than I can explain what Congress thinks or does, but it's just, we've had this year after year after year after year, we're going to fix this or we're going to at least look at it because if you don't have data, you can't identify a problem. You can have a theory, but without data, it's not going to go anywhere. So you have this year after year after year slippage. And yes, finally, September, 2019, I believe they released the report based on 2017's numbers. So now we have a report based on essentially at this point, two and a half year old numbers. To be quite honest, I was very disappointed. I don't know if you've seen the report. I don't know how many of your listeners have seen the report. Basically, what they did is, like I said, they took 2017's numbers. They counted active duty spouses in with the dependent spouses. Military currently serving, so dual military spouses. Dual military spouses, they counted. There were some interesting statistics to come out. So they reported 123 spousal suicides. And again, we, we don't know the true number. Because how many of those might have already been counted in the active duty? We can imagine it's probably one to 10, maybe. So, but what we do know is that the majority of the spouse suicides were females under the age of 40. The majority of dependents were male. Almost 50% of the dependents were over 18 because the Department of Defense counts a dependent differently. And then of those younger than 18, I think 62% were between 15 and 17. So we have older teens to young adults on the dependent side. And then on the spousal side, it very much reflects the military spouse demographic that we know of. And they, they only broke it out by active reserve, national guard, and total force. You and I both know that in, a, in the military, the ecosystem can vary from base to base, much less from branch to branch. So I would have liked to have seen this is the Air Force's numbers. This is the Army's numbers. This is the Navy's numbers. This is the Marine Corps numbers. So we can see, do we have an Air Force problem? Do we have an Army problem? And if we have an Army problem, do we have a, a cluster at a particular base? I don't wonder, and, and yes, this is very bittersweet, and we've been working towards this, or we, Congress and 2015 National Defense Authorization Act, we finally get the numbers, but then we're upset about the numbers we get, right? We, we want something to eat, but then what we get wasn't very satisfying. I don't wonder if this is the first data point very similar to sort of the 2013 numbers we got in the veteran population that spawned the 22, which we know now isn't accurate, but at least that was a starting point right. that allowed us to ask these questions you're asking and then refine data for the future. Right. And I very much I like your analogy there. I mean, I was expecting a steak and I got a salad and I'm not a salad girl. So it was, it was disappointing, but you're right. I mean, the main course could be to follow. 
at least we do have this initial data. Like I said, it was interesting breaking out. It was very, it was like maybe a page in the report actually devoted to military dependence. But they did have some interesting data regarding the spouse breakout as far as females under the age of 40. And I think in this case, it provides room for somewhere like IVMF or Blue Star Families or other organizations to kind of move in. We don't have a whole lot of research on what the typical military spouse looks like. We know what the typical veteran looks like. We know what the typical service member looks like. We track where they come from, level of education, things like that. We've just now started doing that in the last few years on spouses. And it would be really interesting, I think, to break out, again, this is my research junkie talking, we have a culture problem because we do know from multiple studies that there's often concern with military spouses that their treatment for mental health might reflect poorly on their active duty service member. In a world where we're shaming spouses at the BX or the PX, and we're, we're telling get your dependent in line. Have we encouraged a culture where, where you know, we have this stigma that we've talked about in, in military and veteran circles that there might be a stigma in treating mental health? Have we now encouraged a stigma with spouses? There's an aspect, and, and of course, I'm coming at it from a, a service member perspective, but I remember as a young E5 at Fort Bragg back in the late 90s, where I had one soldier in particular, he was probably 19 years old, 20 years old, maybe his wife was probably 19, 20, and they had already had three kids. Right. So this whole idea of, of babies having babies, we've talked about this on the show before about how service members bring to the military their baggage. The military is as much a running away from military spouses, the same, right? They mm -hmm. could be running away from a situation and marrying their service member could be a way out of a negative situation. So this idea of adverse childhood experiences, as you said, it's not just one individual, the service member brings it and the, the spouse may bring it too. Right. And it's important. I'm not going to say that one is, is more important than the other, but we do know that the stress level of the at-home caregiver is the single largest factor in the well-being of children of deployed service members. So if you're going to deploy someone, you need to know the person staying behind with the kids is going to be okay. We're also seeing now that spousal support and satisfaction is a key variable in service member retention. I mean, I, I know in our experience, that was very much a large part. If I had been able to find meaningful employment, if we hadn't been on that constant deployment train, I don't know that my husband wouldn't still be active duty and very happy there. And, and on the veteran side, even, we don't know about veteran spouses. And, and I think that's critical too. The idea of your husband being involuntarily extended over and over and over again, likely, and, and maybe somebody would have checked in with him after the second time, maybe the unit chaplain or somebody would have said, hey, are you doing okay with this, right? The focus would have been on him Hey, yeah, this is a bad beef, but are you doing okay? How are you holding up, buddy? Somebody would have reached out to check on him ostensibly, but not his spouse. That's what you're talking about is, is we're looking at the service member, mm -hmm. but my wife experienced my four of the deployments that we were married together for. She experienced those deployments very differently than I did. Right. And one, and again, this goes to a base by base culture. The first time I heard from the key spouse in an official capacity regarding my husband's deployment was, oh, hey, your husband's coming home. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Why, why do I even need you? What are you here for? I, I got it. Thanks. We're at like six and a half. I, I think by now I've got it figured out. But I also think, again, coming from this, from air crew side, I was a weapons controller. And so, and it maybe. Maybe that just kind of feeds my control freakism. But when you're in charge, you're in control, right? You've got this. When he's deployed or when your spouse is deployed, you're half a world away. You have no idea what's going on. 
you can't control anything that it's like your control level just is spinning and there's nothing you can do. And so there is that loss of control, whether your spouse is deployed, whether your spouse is transitioning and you don't know what the future holds, whether your spouse is a veteran and you feel like you can't get adequate care. And I saw that a lot when I was working as a congressional district staffer handling veterans casework. A lot of times the spouses, they would come into my office and just break down and cry. And when I would ask them, who's taking care of you? Because I was always my question, you know, okay, we're going to make sure we're going to do what we can for your service member. Who's taking care of you? And they would look at me and be like, I don't have time for that. Right. And if they did have time, they might not have that capacity. Yeah. They don't have the emotional or mental capacity at that point. You're, you're like no emotional energy left for yourself. Or even the resources, right? That right. staff sergeant that gets out of the Marine Corps after eight years and three tours, mm-hmm. at least they have the VA, however that may be, but their spouse has nothing. They don't have that unless they get a job with other insurance and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so that is a gap for, for, the caregiver who is not able to receive that mental health support. And then you also mentioned not knowing about suicide deaths in the veteran population. Not all veteran spouses were with that service member in the military, right? So my father got married and had me and my sister on his way out of the military, right? So he, he extended one day in the military so my mom could have my sister and then he was out the next day. And so my entire experience is post-military. A lot of veteran spouses are, are maybe on their second or third marriage or what have you, mm-hmm. and the service members on their second. So that military spouse may not even understand military culture as my wife does having experienced it with me as you did having been a dual military spouse, which adds another factor of complication. Right. And a lot of times I think we, and you may be able to speak to this more than I can, we have like a geographic gap or a barrier to mental health access as well. You have whole areas where there is very limited mental health availability. And so if you have a veteran spouse who perhaps they don't have that military exposure and we're all adults here and you can't account for the mental health and the baggage that you bring to a marriage necessarily, but you marry someone who's come out of the service who may not have had the best experience, who's had multiple deployments and perhaps some level of PTS, and you don't know how to handle it. You think you're in love and you're young and and no one thinks about the complications when you get married, right? You know, I remember that used to irk me all the time when he would deploy and someone would tell me, well, you knew what you signed up for. Well, (laughs) no, Karen. No, Karen, I didn't. That's like telling someone whose house has just burned down. Well, when you bought a house, you knew this could happen. And so these things happen. Life happens. And so you have someone perhaps who's gotten married or on second or third marriage, possibly, or maybe a first marriage, but they have no military experience. They're out here in the boondocks and you're two and a half hours from the nearest mental health access. What are you going to do? Thankfully, I think telehealth is, is getting better. We're getting more integrated with that. You know, they're working at removing those barriers, but still you have places where internet may not be great. I live in the DFW Metroplex and two days last week, a cell phone tower went down and I'm like, I I have no cell phone. What do I do? I mean, I'm like walking around my house going, I I have no cell phone. And my husband's like, you'll win. I'm like, but I have no cell phone. What if I need to make a call? But in your, like you said, this isn't West Texas, right? You're not in the panhandle. You're in an area where you would normally have that connectivity. I really felt it was important to bring this perspective to this overall conversation. We often do talk about service members, veterans, and military families. And that phrase, and military families, is often just sort of the addendum, right? Maybe the the thing that we tack on. We didn't issue you that. 
Right. But, and I've said it before, that if it wasn't for my wife, if I came home, maybe one more deployment or one more patrol, and I came home to an empty house, I would not be as successful as I am mm -hmm. in post-military life. And so our mental health impacts our family and our family impacts our mental health. Right. You can't have one without the other. No, you, you can't. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. If people want to find out what you're doing, you're doing some stuff to, to address veterans, female veterans specifically. Where can they find out the work that you're doing? Sure. So I'm still kind of messing with this. You can look me up on LinkedIn if you want to chat about it. You can also reach out to me on Facebook. Feel free. I don't bite. And then recently I've been working on women veteran authors because as I'm sure Dwayne will tell you, writing is great your mental health, writing about those experiences, but also having a shared community. I mean, some people ask me, well, why just women? Well, when you think of a veteran, what is it? One in six men are veterans, one in 26 women. So we don't stand out. We don't really have a, a club. We, we don't have a room of our own, especially those of us who write. And if you, if you are a writer, how important it is to have someone who gets you. And this kind of came out of when I had a critique. He, he asked to read some of my work and he's reading it. And he's like, well, this is all wrong. And, and this is not how a female service member would ask. And I'm like, where you did know. you serve? And he's like, well, I've never served. And I'm like, well, then how do you? And he's like, well, this just isn't right. And I'm like, well, no, this happened. This happened to me. And he's like, well, no one's going to believe this. And so having, having other women and what I would, I would love to happen is have enough women veteran authors get together to where we have agents and publishers coming to us. Can we share your stories? Even if it's fiction, even if it's not necessarily military related, women veterans excel wherever you put them. Usually. I mean, we, we stand out. We're used to standing out. I was the only redhead in the whole wing when I was going through officer training school. I mean, my flight commander used to be like, I can pick out the flight from a hundred yards away. So we're used to standing out and I think it's a great opportunity. So if you look on Facebook for women veteran authors, you can find the Facebook page. There's a group. If you are a woman veteran author, we encourage you to join. And that's my latest projects lately. Well, I really appreciate it. I will make sure that all of that is in the show notes. Thank you for joining right. me today. Thanks, Dwayne. Have a great one. For as long as we've been talking about service member and veteran suicide, it's somewhat concerning that we're having the conversation about military and veteran spouse suicide only more recently. What'd you pull out of my conversation with Michelle? I really enjoyed this interview. I thought she had a lot of really interesting things to say. One of the things I wanted to emphasize is that, as she said, situations can really vary for spouses. And as I thought about this, I was thinking about how just really this, that military service is not for everybody. Just as some who enlist soon come to realize it's not the right fit for them, the same thing can happen with military spouses. And as Michelle said, unless somebody grew up in a military family or has some other personal reason to understand the military lifestyle, few people truly know what they are getting into. In the worst case scenarios, it's not a good fit and there isn't enough community support. And this becomes the reason why it just can't work for the service member either. It can also work really well though, when spouses are able to get the right support and they themselves are wired like warriors in their own way. In the best case scenarios, a spouse will take on the mission themselves. They feel the same deep sense of purpose from being a member of the military community. The spouse's deployments become their deployment. There's a rhythm that characterizes their life as they turn to their tribe when their spouses are away for extended periods of time. 
they develop a deep and satisfying role as a member of their own military tribe of spouses. They're not isolated. What happens is that both partners in the couple develop deep roots in not one, but two families. And for these couples, it can be a wonderful life. The thing I think we forget is that when it works really well, there's the same transitional trauma on the other end that needs to be supported. Military spouses can lose the roles and relationships that gave their life structure and meaning and take a diversified, very socially connected life down to a single relationship, which can put a lot of pressure on that relationship all of a sudden. It's a time of intense vulnerability for that relationship since both people are going through an intense grieving process at the same time that is hard to put into words. And I just wanted to make the point that it's the same kind of painful detachment that can feel a bit like an emotional amputation and warrior wives and husbands often feel it as much as the active duty service members. And I think that can maybe be even exacerbated if a service member and their spouse leave the military and go back home, so to speak. My wife and I, when I retired, remained in a military town. We'd been here since 2006. And and so we had the roots here and we had the connections here and we were established in our community. But if we were to, for example, go back to where my wife is from, Knoxville, Tennessee, we might not have had the connection to the military and both of our connections, even though she was going back home, she hadn't been there in 22 years. And I think that might've been a pretty big challenge for her in transition, as you described. Definitely. It's the reason why a lot of military couples end up finding their next kind of home after the military in military towns, because they are connected to those tribes. And you're right, to to go back home isn't always the best situation of support for those couples. Uh, The other point I really wanted to pull out was about access to care. You think about barriers to mental health care as far as like geographic distance to a clinic and things like that. But in my experience, barriers to care often occur at the psychological level as a first step. So especially with military relationships, there's this sense of, the identified person of focus, and then his or her supporters. So the person of focus is the person who's on the active duty role. And this can lead to the spouse feeling like the invisible sufferer, but they wouldn't even describe it that way. They feel like the person who does not deserve treatment because they're not the one who's deploying. And the system can then reinforce this in a way by not providing support in this way either. There is this perception of a limited amount of support available. How many times have we both heard veterans say, I don't wanna take that spot because someone else needs that care more than I do, or I didn't have to deploy to a combat zone, or I didn't lose a limb, or I didn't have it as bad as he or she did. It's a culture in the military that's intensely comparative in terms of pain and suffering. And this extends to military partners and spouses as well. They're socialized to believe that they should not take time or attention that active duty service members may require. And then there's the piece about, as Michelle said, mental health support can be hard to access because of geographical unavailability and remoteness and things like this. I asked Michelle permission, and she gave it to me, to talk about something I'm about to launch. What it is created very specifically to start addressing this need for military partners and spouses, as well as service members and veterans. 
It's called Redefine Your Mission, and it's a collaboration with two other people, a woman named Jennifer Tracy, who's overcome a great deal of trauma in her own life, and a retired military chaplain. We've created an online bundle to develop insights and provide strategies and solutions for mental health challenges. It'll include both of our books and then chapter summaries, key questions, and short videos from each of us for each chapter in our book and other bonus materials. We definitely wrote it for spouses and partners of service members as well for the same reason. So if people want to learn more, it's at redefineyourmission.com if you want to take a look. And by the time this show is out, it should be launched. That's great. And, and that is one of the things is, uh, as Michelle mentioned in the episode, um, as she was talking to spouses advocating for their veterans, uh, she would turn around and say, what about you? And often caregivers, and it's not about me. It's not about what I need. It's not about what, what's wrong with me, if I even think about that. So I think that is definitely some good point and some great resources. We appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS32, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. There you can get the links to everything we talked about in the episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon, and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.